0: Uh, Good evening. Uh, I'm Wesley Brown, and I will uh, be introducing the panelists and uh, serving as moderator in Henry Louis Gates, Jr.'s absence. Um, The theme of this evening, Silenced American Writers, the Meaning of the Freedom to Write, in the United States. Uh, the, we've been very fortunate to have assembled a very distinguished group of writers and thinkers who I feel will provide us with a very provocative and illuminating evening. Um, to my immediate right, um, Manuel Ramos Otero, who has um, published three collections of short stories, a novel, a collection of poetry, and writes exclusively in Spanish, although he has been translated into German and French. And uh, he's informed me that um, Gregory Kolovakis is uh, presently translating uh, into English some of his poetry. Um, June Jordan is the author of several books of poetry, including two collections of essays Civil Wars and On Call. She has also written a libretto and lyrics for the musical Bang Bang Uber Alles, which was produced in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in 1987. Uh, Jamaka Highwater, to my immediate right, is the author of several books, including novels and studies on Native and North American culture. His book, uh, Primal Mind, was made into a PBS documentary, which he co-produced and wrote. And his most recent book is Shadow Show, an autobiographical insinuation. Um, To my immediate left, uh, E.L. Doctorow, author of several novels, which include The Book of Daniel, Ragtime, um, a play, Drinks Before Dinner, and most recently, World's Fair. And to the far left, uh, Dolores Prida, who is a playwright, writer, and editor, who has written uh, many plays, among them, Beautiful Senoritas, The Beggar's Soap Opera, and they have been uh, translated into English, and and they've been also performed in Spanish. So uh, the format for um, this evening is that I will uh, make a few opening remarks, and then each uh, of the panelists will then Um, make a statement, uh, uh, either a personal statement or or a statement in response to something that one of the other panelists has um, um, raised, and then we will, um, I guess, have a discussion and then the uh, floor will then be open for for, for questions from the audience. It was suggested to me when the theme for this evening's panel was proposed that a discussion of the ways in which writers in this country are silenced would be a mockery of what they believe to be the more overt suppression of writers in places like South Africa, Eastern Europe and South America. However, I don't believe that this is quite the moment for self-congratulatory pieties about our cherished freedoms. In fact, Our best writers always call into question the assumptions that are our greatest source of comfort. But the context in which writers in this country sound the alarm raises, I believe, many important questions. Are there forces inherent in this society which make it difficult for people to hear what writers have to say? What are the dangers of censorship in a country where everything can be said? And to what extent, in an an ostensibly free society, can the word become debased and trivialized? These questions take on more significance when examining the myths which have shaped our national identity. The historian Thomas Bender has argued that the Puritan and Jeffersonian communal ideals remain the bedrock of American values. Both advocated a consensus which nourished a distrust of democracy, especially any that proceeded from difference. So at the core of the Puritan and Jeffersonian notions of community was the belief that any difference was indistinguishable from subversion. If the direction of power in the United States is toward uniformity, then what effect does this have on writers whose voices are at odds with the diction of the powerful? John Edgar Weidman, in an essay that appeared in the most recent issue of the New York Times Book Review, responds this way, quote, you learn the language of power, learn it well enough to read and write, but its forms and logic cut you off, leaving silence or self-censorship as your only options, end of quote. This leads me to ask whether the meaning of the freedom to write in the United States turns on two conflicting versions of our experience as a nation. The first being the dominant myth of homogeneity, and the second deriving from a reality that is fractious, disorderly, and full of contradictions and surprises. These are some of the questions I've asked myself in anticipation of tonight's panel. And to echo John Weidman's sentiments again, it is my hope that by taking a systematic look at the restrictions which inhibit writers in this country, we will be instructed in the ways to break the silence. So um, having said that, um, the first um, speaker will be um, Dolores Prida.
1: tell you about me. I don't have any freedom to write. I have to work for a living. I work for the Association of Hispanic Arts. It's a service organization. We are there supposedly to promote and encourage the art of Hispanic uh, individual artists and organizations. Uh, Lately, we found that we are spending a lot more time trying to find temporary housing for an increasing number of homeless artists that we have little time left to worry about a poet not having a book published. In a way, and we sometimes joke about it, but it's really not joke, we have become sort of a social work agency for the arts. When I'm not being a social worker for the arts, I spend a lot of time speaking at forums similar to this one. At these event, I do my spiel about the Hispanic artists being overlooked and underappreciated, et cetera, et cetera, I'm sure you've heard it before. And I usually see quite a number of heads nodding in agreement and in sympathy. Then we all go home and nothing happens, except that the host feel much better for having done something about Hispanic artists, when in fact nothing has been gained. In fact, I'm invited to so many of these things that I'm beginning to feel there is something subversive about it. (laughs) I mean that by giving us so many of these forums to complain and and, and nag about our problems, instead of providing us with some concrete wherewithal to create art, to move forward, Somebody or something is always taking time and energy from us, which might be better of spent writing and creating. I think that this way they have to worry about a less play that has to be produced, a less book. And that's why I don't have the freedom to write. Now, although I do not have this freedom to write, I'm well aware that if I had it, I could write anything I wanted. In fact, I have done so at various points in my life. In fact, once I had the freedom to quit my job and try being a full-time freelance writer, and I discovered that I also had the freedom to starve. (laughs) I even have the freedom and the honor and the thrill to sit in a place like this next to some of my favorite writers and tell you all about it. But all these wonderful freedoms amo- don't amount to mon- too much if we lack the freedom of being published, the freedom of being reviewed, the freedom of having our works included, the freedom of having our works included in curriculums, the freedom of having our plays produced by big theaters with big budgets the freedom for our small, non-commercial Hispanic presses, which they are a curious kind of American samizdat, We publish and pass it on to each other, and nobody else sees it. (laughs) If These presses don't have access to distribution and promotion outlets. Now, despite the increasing uh, numbers of the Hispanic community across the country, we're supposed to be soon the largest ethnic minority in the United States. No more than two or three writers are published. Uh, Even those, and I'm talking about those who write in English. Those who write in Spanish are condemned mostly to self-publishing, publishing publishing outside the country, or dating. With the threat of the uh, US-English constitutional amendment that uh, is being been uh, lobbied so strongly, some of the uh, writers that write only in Spanish may even th- be threatened further uh, where this uh, constitutional amendment be passed because in the ramification and interpretation of such uh, an amendment are unknown and very vast. Furthermore, I don't think there is much interest in this country about reading. Most young people watch MTV all the time. And much less, there's even much less interest in reading about Hispanics. We are considered ethnic literature, uh, marginal, regional. Somehow we are not universal enough. And we could ask, whose universe? And somehow, also, we don't share the glamour of the uh, Latin American uh, literature that is so popular here. Uh, Somehow, our years of solitude in the Macondos of the ghettos, in the the own magic reality of the Macondos of the ghettos, are too close for comfort. We don't belong. And I'm speaking because I write in English. I began writing theater here. I never saw a play, I'm from a very small town, there wasn't a theater. We just had two movie houses where I saw Mexican movies and American movies uh, dubbed into Spanish. So I feel my theater is American theater. My theater is about the experience of being a Hispanic in the United States. These voices are American voices. So it's like we are orphans in the storm. We don't belong to this Latin America literary uh, boom or whatever it's called. And yet, we are not considered American writers either. I don't have any answers. How can all this be changed? I don't know. But I would feel much better if somebody gave me a a call at a ha one day and say, we want to publish books by Hispanics. Send me a list. Send me a manuscript something more concrete than asking me to give speeches, which I'm not very good at anyway. Thank you. Um,
0: Jamaica Highwater.
2: I think my interest in the, in the subject of, of censorship um, in the United States and the silencing of American writers is concerned with um, a rather insidious situation, uh, which is difficult to describe and probably impossible to do anything about. And that's the fact that there are writers whose work, um, many of them are in mid-career, their work has been widely read often their work is highly esteemed by certain critical quarters and yet they find themselves in a position because of a variety of social circumstances in which they begin to vanish simply to disappear I I think the implication of the kind of treatment which causes this is or the purpose of the treatment that causes this is essentially to promote their disappearance I'm thinking for instance of uh, of several people uh, the late John Gardner for instance whose work was very well received um, won many critical accolades, uh, but who apparently, although I knew John quite well, I don't know exactly what the problems were, but apparently roused a certain amount of antagonism in certain areas and began to be the target of a kind of um, non-literary political an often backroom kind of uh, attack upon his credibility so that his career began to waver, falter. And finally, a major national magazine came out with one of those typical articles based on supposition innuendo and the ravings of a few fanatical people. And the insinuation was is that in one of his works concerned with medieval literature, which was one of his specializations, he had leaned too hard on some academics or the works of academics whose um, main complaint, I think, is that they were not as famous as John Gardner. The word that all authors fear the most that starts with a P was never mentioned but it was so strongly insinuated by circumstantial evidence that it effectively silenced a remarkable writer so what I am concerned about then is the way in which certain antagonists wait for the right moment to be able to silence a writer for reasons that we never never are clear to us, because the, the coup de grâce generally has nothing to do with what the central behind-the-scenes problem is all about. John Gardner, unfortunately, uh, met with a tragic motorcycle accident and wasn't able to do something that Virgil Thompson has always told me is the most important thing that any artist can do and that's to outlive your enemies
3: <laughs>
2: um, and he's managed um, but and his career and his works of course have survived but my concern is that not as a racial issue not as a general issue but as a professional issue there seemed to be a lack of support among writers who should have been very concerned that one of their members could be so accused without any substantiation of the accusation and that someone's career would be injured by this it's sort of a dreyfus syndrome that i see happening all the time truman capota toward the end of his life was asked if this cannibalization of artists has always been the case. And he responded by saying, yes, we seem to be built up to a certain point in a power structure. And then we seem to become a target. And if we can survive 10 or 15 or 20 years of major activity, creative activity, in the arts without being shot down. We're very lucky indeed. This to me is the most insidious form of censorship. The other example that I think of immediately is the one that Gore Vidal has written about. Certainly a writer who doesn't have to worry about being published or read or reviewed. But apparently earlier in his career, according to his own writings, own comments, after he wrote a book called The Sling and the Arrow, which at the time, I guess, of its publication, it was considered a groundbreaking book on a subject that was tabooed. From his own statement, he was not then reviewed by the New York Times for 10 years. That is the kind of neglect, the kind of censorship, if you will, which is very damaging in the life of any artist. A friend of mine who lives in Leningrad and visited the United States for some time came away with an interesting statement, and perhaps it sums up what I have been trying to say, directly and indirectly, about the way in which the indignation industry allows us to vent our envy, our jealousy, even our differences of opinion in, in the media as attacks upon persons that in some way offend us. He said that he had come to the conclusion that there is censorship in the United States and in Russia. And I said, oh, that's interesting. How, what kind of a conclusion did you draw? And he said, well, for many, many years during the era of Stalin, we used to put our poets in jail in Russia. But in the United States, we just ignore them. Yeah. Who said that? That friend of mine? Yeah. Alexei Ghanov. Ghanov? yeah. Yes,
4: he
2: is. Yeah.
0: Thank you <laughs> 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 June Jordan
5: yeah, I always believe that um, there is some and I always trust that there is some point to um, it's not simply a matter of a complaint it's a, f- a matter of trying to share with people what you know, whoever you are, uh, so that some constructive action can follow from that. Um, I'd like to just comment uh, for a split second on uh, two preceding speakers. I'd just like to say to uh, Dolores Prida, I agree with you that class has a lot to do uh, with the freedom to write in this country. Class, of course, is a very unpopular subject in America, per se. <coughs> but it has, it has everything to do with the arts, and not just uh, the written arts. Whether or not you have the time, and what kind of time you have, to devote to your writing. And uh, to Jamaka Haiwat I'd like to uh, um, bring to your attention a piece of uh, recent news. Uh, at odds with the idea that writers are nece- necessarily a, c- a competitive, cannibalizing, uh, internecine group of savages, 48 black writers, uh, men and women, uh, extremely well-known and not very well-known at all, uh, recently came together to pay tribute to one of our best-known writers in the the United States, Toni Morrison. So I suggest to you this is news. um, This is part of of the reason why we did it. (laughs) uh, And it is not an instance of um, cannibalization. It's an instance of uh, voluntary and delighted tribute to uh, one of our great writers and I think um, <coughs> I think it's it's always necessary to notice the good news and to r- also in that connection realize that uh, all of us are capable of doing different things. We don't have to just repeat things. I have uh, two pages I'd just like to share with you. It's a c- in the nature of a kind of sh- scattershot shot uh, presentation of uh, my address to the title this evening, the meaning of the Freedom to write in the United States of America, and I just hope that uh, it'll these uh, scattershot ideas and observations may uh, arouse some really good discussion among us uh, f- <coughs> First of all, I'd just like to say that I think when before you can um, try to answer something like that or address something like that meaningfully, you really have to begin uh with the issue of who can read. And once you get to the issue of who can read, I think you're getting to two things. One is the extremely high rate of illiteracy that obtains in the United States, which I don't think is accidental, and it certainly has tremendous political, not to say cultural, uh, implications for all of us. Um, Secondly, um, when you know, uh, and, and if you don't know, please try to find out what happens to black children in our compulsory public school systems across this country who come to our schools with their own language, black English, and who are then judged to be deficient um, intellectually because they do not uh, meld with standard English requirements. Or when you look at any of our Latino or Hispanic American children and, and citizens who are likewise penalized because they have a different language from that of, of uh, the guy on the 6 o'clock news and television we're talking about a very serious situation as far as literacy is concerned. Uh, and here, th- when I'm talking about the consequences of, of um, insistence upon one language for all the many different people that we are, and everyone else will be punished uh, who deviates from that, um, you can see that um, this question, who can read, <laughs> or who is allowed to come to the power Uh, being able to read is really essential uh, to look at. Secondly, I'd like to suggest that the title begs the question because it assumes that there is a freedom to write in the United States. I don't see that as a given. I think I would rather break it down. um, First of all, uh, to ask who has what kind of freedom to write about what, in which American language, and I submit to you there are many American languages, otherwise what are we talking about when we say the United States? What are you uniting if it's just one something or other? And publish it where? It is not a given, especially not an equally given freedom, this putative freedom to write in America. As a matter of fact, even the Constitution does not specifically provide for that. We have... Within the the Constitution provided to all of us, freedom of expression. That's not the same as writing, but you know what happened to Michael Stewart, okay? You know what happens to graffiti artists, for example, that's freely expressing yourself. Uh, We know how much consequence any street corner orator may hope to acquire in his or her lifetime. Freedom of the press, we have that guaranteed to us in the Constitution, but then we all know who owns the press, how many. People There are fewer and fewer owning the presses of America. With what kind of distribution, circulation, what readership, what advertising, and what power? All right. In addition to the questions who can write what where, I think we have to look also at the question uh, who can review what, and who can respond to which events in our lives. For example, uh, in our centerpiece of our literary life, the New York Times, and other uh, reviewer review organs that imitate, if not envy, the New York Times. Um, Black writers will be reviewed by white writers. You can count, over the last 50 years, (laughs) the number of times that any black writer has been given a white book. Or anybody, for that matter, not just black writers, anybody who's not white, uh, given a white book about Uh, our country in general to review. It almost never happens. Um, That's censorship. That's uh, an absence of freedom. That's freedom taken away. Uh, Similarly, um, who can respond to which events in our lives? For example, look at the op-ed in any paper, not just the Times. Um, Look at uh, the Boston Globe or the Washington Post. There is specifically designed white access in the press vis-a-vis world issues. And when I say white, I primarily mean white men, of course. There's white access to world issues in our newspapers and periodicals across the country. World affairs are not for the rest of us to address. They simply are not. Um, so and si- uh, there's a systematic effort to keep, for example, black people domestic. You know, We can talk about crime, we can talk about poverty. We can even talk about racism. But uh, that's it, you know? <laughs> that's it. Um, foreign affairs are are foreign to us. And this is uh, <coughs> very curious, I mean, particularly when you understand that anybody who is not white in this country has more at stake with the majority peoples of the world who constitute you know, the, co- the constituency of foreign affairs and anybody else here. For Just on the grounds alone, the fact that how the United States spends its money, whether it spends it abroad, at, you know, in imperial adventurism, or whether it spends it here, on social programs that we all need, affects those of us who are the neediest right here very critically. And those of us who need uh, our resources committed to us tend not to be white, okay? So we have a lot to say about foreign affairs for many different reasons, and we have almost no access uh, publicly. This is systematically denied to us. Um, and we get to uh, uh, which American language. I want to just uh, under, underline that again. I want to say that again. There really are many different American languages of necessity because we are many peoples here in these United States, but there is only one language. It's not a language that is that is dubbed standard, Okay, it's the correct language and everything else, everything that is not the standard language is dubbed incorrect if not evidence of intellectual hopelessness. Okay. Now, there's such a there's such a thing in our in our con- our international consciousness as dissident as well as revolutionary writers everywhere but the United States. Everywhere else in the Unite- throughout the world there are dissident writers and revolutionary writers, the, the favorites are the ones who come here from the Soviet Union, okay, or Cuba, <laughs> or Cuba. <laughs> okay. Those d- so-called dissident and revolutionary writers are honored here. They're given townhouses in the village, okay. Uh, they're given awards. They're given tremendous. Out there. I want. I want to just say very simply here: there are, of course, and there always have been. As long as there's a United States of America, there always will be dissident and revolutionary writers right here. But what happens is we have tremendous difficulty gaining access to mainstream consciousness. We are not recognized with the dignity accorded uh, um, Soviet or Cuban or whatever, Argentinian dissident or revolutionary. We are called political writers. That's supposed to mean somehow we are not serious because apparently to be American and political is 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 a, a kind of oxymoron. Um, now. <laughs> think about that for a moment if you would. <laughs> okay. All right. And when I when I say dissident, I am including not simply quote political in some broad sense like uh Republican, Democrat or other words, but uh, or other, but I also mean black, feminist, gay, Native American, Latino Americans. Then we have interfering with the, the American freedom um, of writers to write, um, the, the problem of the academic canon, and the problem of market wisdom on, on uh, what will sell and, and what's valid. But those are, those are two very uh, real barriers to freedom of expression on the part of of our literary artists. Um, Perhaps uh, one way to very easily see the the politics of American freedom to write uh, is to look at the media access that the United States Congressional Black Caucus has available to it. Um, It's disgracefully negligible. It's disgracefully negligible. And that's despite the fact that the, The United States Black Congressional Caucus has been on the forefront of every major issue of our time, consistently. Um, uh, Congressman John Conyers has again and again called press conferences to propose really radical reforms that would affect all Americans. Things that would, for example, prevent capital flight from our country. All right. This affects all Americans. And no one shows up. (laughs) Just No one shows up. This is an example of the politics of American freedom to write. In addition, I want you to note the presence or absence of op-eds anywhere by black folks, for example, on Howard Beach or Bernard Goetz. If you think I'm kidding, go back and check out the files. Throughout all of that, where where was the access of anybody black on any of those subjects? Nowhere. You think that's because we didn't care (laughs) or didn't try? This is extraordinary. Um, We're talking about systematic, predictable censorship, barrier to expression uh, on the part of our various writers and from their various constituencies. In addition, the postulated freedom to write in America, this notion must be measured against the the prevailing segregationist habits of those who control our media. We are all pigeonholed, caged. Actually, for example, by gender, if you are a woman, there are some. So there, there's a whole slew of things called women's issues. Those are things you can write about. Otherwise, okay. I already said if you're black, what you can write about. You know, crime, poverty, racism. <laughs> uh, if you're some other ethnicity, then you come under the heading of cultural exotica. If you're lucky, maybe Bloomingdale, something like this. Okay. Um, then you're then you're also blockaded by genre. If you are a poet, then you cannot write about anything else, anything outside poetry. You know what I mean? Uh, and and we can see in an example of of uh, the memorials paid to, to to James Baldwin, something that I'm, I'm what I'm talking about very specifically. Okay. James Baldwin was pigeonholed, I say, in caged to a great extent by the media, mass media, as a black writer. And this was to deny his full humanity. This man was gay. Where was the the acknowledgement of that? I mean, the the, the fact of the homosexuality of James Baldwin had everything to do, I submit, with the extraordinary sensitivity of this man in our midst the implacable sense of being outside, outside everything and everyone that he carried throughout his life. It was not just a physical exile. The man was in spiritual and psychological exile. And from that position and that feeling of exile, because he was a homosexual, he was able to reach out again and again and again as passionately as he did in his attempt to embrace all of us. And yet you deny the root of that and how does that happen? And I say again, this is because he's pigeonholed. You know, the, This is what I'm talking about, caging people according to extraordinarily narrow, inhuman, um, categorical concepts, which are really notions. They're not concepts. And finally, I'd like to say, as far as the, the uh, lack of freedom available to Native Americans in our, in our country, which is appalling, who more than Native Americans in our country should speak to us on all survivor and survivalist issues? Who more than Native Americans? And yet, how often do you ever hear anything um, from our the Native the Native Americans who remain in our country? Okay, that's my scattershot contribution.
0: Manuel Ramos Sotero.
6: I am the only writer in the panel that uh, doesn't write in English, so uh, I'm going to take the liberty of reading my statement. Two years ago, as I was being interviewed by a literary journal from Columbia University, I made the following statement. In Puerto Rico, it was always more difficult to be homosexual than Puerto Rican. When I came to New York, it became evident to me that it was more difficult to be Puerto Rican than homosexual. (laughs) I was referring to the development of a political consciousness in my writing and through my writing. Today, I must admit that exploring the issue of being a homosexual Puerto Rican writer hasn't just been the marrow of my literature, but that I have been reacting as well to those social forces that have censored me as a creative individual. Due to the stagnant colonial situation in Puerto Rico, our literature has always been a very important medium that has explored and denounced the identity crisis which has been the result of cultural assimilation and political uncertainty. In many ways, the need to respond to our identity crisis has been responsible for limiting our artistic expression under the sanctified banner of political priorities. Assuming a militant stand as a homosexual, or as a woman, in a clear-cut patriarchal society whose values were being seriously threatened by imperialism and Americanization was not a priority. But it was what I chose or what chose me. Precisely in my writing and the open expression of my sexuality has become, especially for the critics and the censors, the trademark in my literature. This means that in Puerto Rico I have been a stereotype in many ways as the fagot writer, although the discreet charm of the bourgeois censorship has forced it to express it in a more euphemistic manner. To write openly about my sexuality has been seen also as a direct result of my Americanization even if nobody really knows what is the result of Americanization in Puerto Rican society since we have been an American colony for the past 89 years. I must admit that in many occasions, I was almost convinced that my censors were right. After all, I was born in the bosom of a petit bourgeois family who was totally supportive of statehood for Puerto Rico. Although it had resisted defensively any modernization throughout the massive industrialization of the island, which was taking place at the same time that I was growing up and becoming a writer. The education that I received was very much concerned with the prestige of English. Still, English was a class commodity. Not so much a necessity, and as a matter of fact, I was the only one in my family who ever read literature in English. I believe that I was fortunate, unlike most Puerto Rican writers, since I never felt prejudice toward English or the learning of other languages. It also made it easier for me when I decided to emigrate to the United States or should I say, to New York. (laughs) And when I left Puerto Rico in 1968, I did it for two main reasons. To become independent from my family and because I was tired of being a one-man homosexual movement (laughs) against sexual (laughs) oppression. I do not recall ever thinking about my destiny as a Puerto Rican writer writing in Spanish in an English-speaking country. But I knew that I would continue to write in Spanish. It was really when I came to New York that I began to understand and develop a political awareness. When I saw myself as a Puerto Rican in New York, when I saw the situation of Puerto Ricans in New York, I really understood the situation of Puerto Rico being a colony, since I was no longer the member of a social class, in spite of the privileges of my education, but a member of the most oppressed ethnic group in the city. What my birth, I had, when, what, what my birth had rejected in my country, now I had to embrace by necessity in my exile. To be a Puerto Rican and understand my Puerto Ricanness became an unavoidable issue. To be a homosexual in New York, to be able to fall in love with a man openly in New York, just freed my writing and my existence. After the understandable hardships of getting a job that would allow me to survive, I was able to dedicate my energy to write and I published my first book, a collection of short stories, in 1971. Since then, I have written all my books in New York. They have been published while I have been living in New York, and they have all been written in Spanish. I have understood, sometimes against my natural poetic will, that I have to write in Spanish, because in the case of Puerto Rican culture, language has become a means of survival, a political weapon. But more than that, because Spanish is the language with which I became a writer, and writing only has allowed me to define and to continue to redefine myself endlessly. But how can a Spanish writer survive writing and publishing in Spanish when he lives in an English-speaking country. The real problem of living in New York and writing in Spanish is not that I am a Spanish writer, but a Puerto Rican writer. I came to New York at the times where Puerto Rican literature written in English was emerging. It was a literature produced by the children of the massive emigration of the 40s and the 50s, a literature that was very much concerned with the economic situation of the Puerto Rican ghettos of which I was not a part. As a Puerto Rican writer who writes in Spanish in New York, I had to be, again, an anachronism even if I identified with the Puerto Rican struggle in the city. As a Puerto Rican writer, I was expected not only to write in, as it has been called, broken English, but I had to write about the issues that the American literary establishment had identified as Puerto Rican issues. I was not allowed to be a writer but an ethnic writer, and if I expressed my sexuality in my writing, I had to be a gay Puerto Rican writer. This meant that my ethnicity and or my sexuality would become parameters ju- to judge my literature was I? a Puerto Rican, or the racist variant of a New York writer? Or was I a gay writer? I refuse to be any of them, as much as I refuse to classify what I write in literary genres. I have been approached by American literary agents who have been interested in representing me, and the question they have asked has been the same. What do you write? what means which is the subject matter of my writing and if I write novels. Which lead me to think that to be the so-called successful American writer, I must be a novelist, and I can write about the only subject matters allowed to a minority writer like me. My problem is that I am unable to separate the Puerto Rican the homosexual, and the poet. And that in spite of censorship, I continue to write whatever I want to write. And that I am not a, minori- a minority writer because I am a Puerto Rican, a homosexual, or a poet. But that writing always was, and still is, in 1988, something done by very few And that maybe the very existence of censorship justifies the rebellious presence of my literature. Thank you.
0: E.L.
7: outset that I am not aware ever of having been personally censored and in fact uh, r- 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 led a rather privileged life as a writer. Um, I think we needed one of those in this panel, <laughs> that's why Wesley g- called me. Um, This is not to say, however, that I, I don't think there is um, censorship. So many ideas have flown across this table. Uh, I just want to respond as as I think of them. I. I agree that um, you always, whoever you are, whatever language you write in, and whatever your circumstances are, you write in sort of in the teeth. In the face of. Um, uh, hostility, and that you make yourself as a writer um, by an act of, um, uh, so creative act of will. And um, you've got to do this no matter who you are, and no matter what your language is, and no matter where you're living. um, the The difficulties might be more or less, The times might be propitious or negative, but you always have to do this. You have to... um, uh, Writing is a form of control. We are proposing um, a... um, uh, Reality is is subject to any construction that's placed upon it, actually. And um, a writer is somebody who... um, Uh, who makes his or her own construction. And uh, the more writers there are, the more witnesses there are, the closer the made, composed realities of the society begin to approach some sort of consensual truth or justice. So while I have great sympathy for a Hispanic writer who doesn't find uh, publishing support or perhaps enough of an audience, I think of these as circumstantial problems that can be solved by the mightiness of the writer. That's um, the first point I wanted to make. I realize it's, um, it can be criticized. The same point I'd like to clarify in terms of censorship, um, some of June, my reactions to June's remarks, uh, the the, the censorship of the press, of the media, I don't think is equivalent to the censorship that you find if you do in book publishing. I have a theory that the wider the distribution, the greater the distribution system, the more censorship there is. Thus, um, when Dan, rather, the other night on television had the temerity to question George Bush about um, his serious involvement in a um, uh, dangerously unconstitutional um, internal kind of uh, subversion at the highest levels. He was uh, seen as being rude and intemperate and uh, um, lacking courtesy, or worse, the the disinterest that a journalist must pretend to have, and if we're to believe the other um, uh, reports, such as in the Times, rather came out rather badly, and George Bush's campaign has gotten a tremendous uh, boost because he was, he testily refused to answer these serious questions as if Rather's courtesy uh, was more important to the country than the truth of George Bush's involvement in the Gate. Now that, that censorship operating right on the air because someone like Dan Rather speaks to, I don't know, 20 million people a night, then you find the kind of censorship I think June was talking about in the press, where a paper may not uh, be read by 20 million people, but it will be read by 2 million people or 750,000 people, or it will be regionally um, dominant. And there, the censorship is a little more relaxed. It is more or less unconscious, as political as it might be, Uh, but you do find ideas that you would never uh, hear on television because the distribution of those ideas is a little less efficient. And finally, you work your way down to the publishing industry. And there, I think the censorship operates least. Uh, When I was in the publishing business in the 1960s, um, I had the privilege of publishing James Baldwin and uh, working as his editor for a couple of his books. But those were heady days in the 1960s. It was a completely different country. And I also published Abby Hoffman, and I also published H. Rap Brown, who is very, very far to the left of, of uh, and as I call rather scornful of James Baldwin's uh, politics. Um, The reason we were able to do that is because we had a very small publishing house and um, no uh, stockholders um, to speak of who were terribly worried about our performance. And um, uh, we had a relative freedom but this leads to my next point which is it's not only the nature of the uh, medium uh, the writer would use but the times are, are something that qualify freedom of speech very clearly. Now there's generally less uh, feeling for it than there was 20 years ago, or 25 years ago. And we see this in all sorts of ways, not only in uh, press and uh, in publishing, but we see it also in academic life where certain teachers do not get tenure because their politics are seen to be too extreme for their colleagues, and they are not judged as scholars or critics or writers. They're judged for their political values and the possibility of infecting their students with those values. So I think that's a qualification we we ought to think about. I myself wanted to just briefly mention the kind of censorship I've been aware of in the past few years, and that's the passive censorship that writers perform on themselves. It seems to me, and I've written about this, that those of us who have the freedom to publish um, with um, and speak our minds because we write books or poems, have been rather timid in the last 20 or 25 years of American life. There used to be a time when there was a context for social, the social novel, the political novel. It doesn't seem to be that now. And um, I just think of the writers who were around in the 30s and all the noise they were making. when Everyone perceived that there was crisis and that things were bad and everyone had a different idea of what to do about it. And there were writers on the left and their various degrees of Marxism and there were writers on the right, there were agrarians and um, futurists. And everyone was taking a stand. Everyone was arguing, polemicizing in the work, outside of the work, and a hell of a lot was going on. And if you just look at the writers who were operating in the 1930s, not just the Hemingway's, Faulkner's, Fitzgerald's, Dreiser, but the general uh, broad-based cultural writing life of this country. It's astonishing what was being produced, how much noise was being made as compared to the rather tame and quiet time we're having now. And I have to see that as a kind of self-censorship on the part of the writers themselves. And why we're like that is very mysterious. There are all sorts of obvious possible answers. One is that um, we're no more um, um, exempt from the stunning effect of living with atomic bombs than anyone else. And we've also crawled into our shells. Another is the growth of the writing programs around the country the teaching of writing in universities I think young writers who, were, who come out today are m- much better writers than people were in the 30s they're more polished, they're more proficient but um, they're also uh, more private and what the academy seems to have taught is uh, proficiency and timidity at the same time as if writing was a a form of academic uh, scholarship. And you have the uh, um, situation of writers coming out of graduate writing programs and getting jobs on campuses teaching other writers to become writing teachers, too. Um, While many fine writers have come out of of this, um, it seems to me as a cultural phenomenon something we haven't paid enough attention to. Um, and finally, and this is, I guess, another response to June's question. There is, there's no, pol- there's no c- critical context for political novels in this country anymore. Uh, and it is true when a political novel comes out of Czechoslovakia, or Colombia, or Russia, or any place else. We we do award it and praise it. Um, but the same critics who respond so uh, energetically to the foreign political novelist um, runs from any or condemns any American um, political expression in novels as a as an impurity, as an aesthetic error, as a um, a violation, a, uh, breaking a taboo of uh, a form. And so there's no uh, poetics of um, of engagement that has been created for us by any critic or any criticism since, um, I guess, since Edmund Wilson in the 1930s. And these are just some of the thoughts I wanted to throw out on the table to suggest that possibly there are wider uh, uh, cultural phenomena going on. Uh,
0: Unless um, anyone on the panel would like to respond to what uh, some of the other panelists have said, uh, uh, I would like to, I guess, just sort of tie some of the threads of, um, of the discussion together and maybe pose a question which can either be addressed or dismissed. Um, um, I have something I would
5: oh, like to say. Ed, if I can comment on your comments <laughs> <laughs> uh of the uh, things you said, I just want to uh demure on a couple of them i I wish that uh it was just a matter of the mightiness of the writing, you know whether or not uh the writers will emerge and will know them and and so on. I really wish um i don't think that's the case I think they a whole lot of forces in in our lives, a lot mightier than the mightiest <laughs> pen around, the mightiest single pen around, and uh, I think that we cannot hope to uh, divorce um, the writer or the artist or the individual from his or her group, and it's, it's a reality that um, there are truly groups of different peoples here in our country, all of us citizens, but there are different groups here which are truly subjugated <laughs> in one way or another and which are not allowed access to the mainstream consciousness and are, as a matter of fact, are oppressed even by the law. So um, from any of those groups uh, within our body politic, um, we probably have all kinds of poets wanting to sing and novelists wanting to invent and so on, but um, their individual might is not enough. Um, what has to happen is that the, the, the subjugation of the people um, they are identified with and or, and or whom with whom they choose to identify, uh, that subjugation must, must end first um, in whatever way that m- can happen. I think that's an interesting idea of yours about the, um, you know, the scale of the of the publication or the distribution, uh, in some way correlating to the degree of censorship. And I just wanted to say that I think that's a very interesting idea. I I'd like to think about that some more. Uh, the 30s versus the 80s. Um, <coughs> again, I'd, I would I'd just like to uh, to express, it, if I may, a polite disagreement. I think that uh, what's going on here in the 80s that I know about is a whole lot, most of it is off camera and off mic. Um, A lot of it goes on in connection with, say, benefits for different issues, whether it's age benefits, benefits against apartheid, you know, that kind of thing. Tremendous outpouring of of artistic work and artists rallying to these different issues, but these things are not covered by the press. They are not, and the writers who who write their hearts out and their heads out uh, for these events and, and on behalf of these different issues, their works are not reviewed. So they constitute an extremely, um, I think, embattled and proud um, multitude of, of artists who are, however, hidden by the media at this time, but they are here. We are here. And um, as far as the other, one other thing I just want to say, I think. Um, the issue of self self-censorship is always uh, something all of us you know must consider as a possibility and and <coughs> be vigilant against. But um, when we are talking about members of of of, of uh, groups of Americans uh, who, for whatever reasons, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, class, um, age. Uh, are subjugated, I think, as we are first of all not talking about self-censorship. We're talking about systematic self-censorship of that entire group which will, and that that censorship, whether it's legislative or the taking away of social programs, people need to stay alive and so forth, necessarily those forms of subjugation impinge as well upon the artists within those groups.
2: I just uh, wanted to respond, if I could, to a couple things. Um, I, because of the, the point of view that I was trying to bring to bear tonight, is, is a kind of secondary idea by comparison, obviously, to the very major concerns of larger stereotypes that people have to face. And um, as an example of that, I remember that 12 years ago, a book of mine That happened to be on uh, Native American painting um, was uh, selected by a major national magazine as one of the many books that it would have on its so-called Christmas list you know and there were art books where and I when I was told it was going to be in that particular magazine I opened immediately to the art section was surprised to see that it wasn't there but it was under books of special interest Mm -hmm. so I do understand what June is saying in that regard, and there's no question of that. But I also think that there is a larger point that I, I feel is essential for us to recognize. And that's that if we consider people simply of the dominant society, there are groups and coteries within that also. And there are coteries that, that preempt one another. And or that battle for positions of, of power, or for positions on the op-ed page, and so on and so forth. There are certain writers who will and will not appear in certain magazines. And those writers are quite different, generally speaking, from those who will appear in another. And I don't think there's any question that this exists. And I think it's important, I think, in, in, in terms of what Ed Doctorow was saying, that. Eventually, you know, Mozart did outlive Salieri and we probably wouldn't even know who Salieri is, uh, was if it weren't for uh, the fact that he was uh, such a champion uh, against uh, uh, Mozart and his work and career and so on. The, p- uh, the same thing happened to Poe, however, who was not a member of a minority, and to Melville in this country, and they weren't neither of them. In fact, if they hadn't been discovered by Europeans, I don't know what their fate would have been in a literary sense. So I think that the truth of the matter is is that the arts are a very difficult place to be. I remember once Carlo Manotti said that when you announce in Italy that you're going to be a composer, they open a bottle of wine. In this country, they throw you out of the house. It's <laughs> the arts are just not a terribly comfortable place to be. Uh, it's we're not you know, we are not holy people, we are not soothsayers, we are not directly related to the mysteries of our society. We're considered specialists. Uh, you listen to classical music on Sunday or on certain holidays. They listen to medieval music on Christmas and so on. We're, we're sort of peripheral to the society. So in a, in a way, the arts themselves are, is an underling um, occupation or a preoccupation. And within it, because it is such a difficult field, if any of you have sat on the literature panel of NISCA or any of the other major foundations and realized how many people are vying for so little money and how often the wrong issues come up. I mean, issues that you wouldn't even take out of the room. You're so appalled. Matters of personality and matters of hearsay and matters of race often, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. So what I'm saying is that I think that art in itself puts this in a secondary you know second-class citizenship to begin with and then within it there are all of these appalling factions vying for the little bit of attention that is available and I think uh, it makes us learn a great deal out of fighting dirty and fighting too hard and making life very difficult on one another. I was aware of course of of the the praise and the tribute that was given to Toni Morrison and, and By the cannibalism I'm talking about, I don't mean simply among artists, although artists are not uh, immune to this. I mean that generally in our society, we have a kind of national enquirer mentality in which those who assume a certain position of prominence or a certain celebrity Mm -hmm. seem to be, nobody ever writes nasty things about people that we don't know anything about. We get much greater pleasure out of seeing greatness fall. I don't think that's what Shakespeare had in mind but we seem to have a great deal more pleasure in that. And I think that can be very counterproductive to the arts themselves. I think some of the blame mm. is, has to do with this stereotyping, but I must say that no matter how effective Julia Child might be about the history of the Middle Ages, I seriously doubt that she'd ever be asked to review a book about it. On the other hand, I think she'd often be asked to write a <coughs> book about cooking. We're all stuck in a kind of corner. We all become specialists. Even Barbara Tuckman is not likely to be asked to, uh, if she were a great fan of American modern dance, I don't think she'd be asked to write a response or a review to a book on that subject. I think this stereotype is a large I take subject. exception to,
5: that, okay. uh, to, that, to the proposal of those analogies. I don't think uh, that the black people and Julia Child have a whole hell of a lot in common, I'd like mm-hmm. to submit. Uh, but I, in cooking or otherwise, what I was talking about was whether you are saying to people that there is a limit to what they can think about and respond to in the world. And no, I mean that very seriously. I'm not talking about cooking versus dancing. I'm talking about housing, let's say, and what's going on in the Middle East. I'm saying that if we are, for example, if black people are fully entitled citizens and we are fully developed human beings, we have necessarily a response to everything that goes on in the world. And on the other hand, because we are fully entitled citizens here, we have a very difficult time expressing ourselves within our own country to our compatriots from our own perspective, which is our t- entitled perspective, um, through the only available media that we have in this country. We ha- because we have been determined that as, as appropriate spokespeople on sports, jazz, rock. Um, as I said before, crime, poverty, and and racism. And and that, I'm sorry to say, is not the entire universe. I'm delighted to report to you that just like everybody else, we have really very serious opinions. We have opinions on South Africa. We have opinions on Israel, on the Palestinians. We have opinions on Nicaragua. We have opinions on, on, on sexuality. And it is not the same as yours. It is not the same as yours. And to the extent that we will become and remain a valid, pluralistic, democratic society, you must, you must, all of us, must make an effort to hear all of us on all of these subjects. And that's what I'm pushing for. And I'm only pushing for it here because I believe this is happening increasingly, and I believe it is possible. And I know, as a citizen of the United States, that it is my right to insist upon that.
2: I don't, I don't doubt what you're saying. I'm simply trying to say that this society is specialized, that Western society is specialized, and that whatever our specialization, that, that, that part of that large image of specialization is also reflected in a very negative way on racial and gender and sexual stereotypes. But I'm simply saying that I don't think it's simply people of color or people of a particular sexual uh, orientation who are excluded from having a voice. I think that all people who are specialized are looked upon as they're supposed to stay in their field. And unfortunately, that large and rather narrow view of the capacity of human beings is reflected very negatively in, in things like sexism and racism. But it doesn't only exist in those areas, it's a much larger issue.
1: I'd I like to make a, a comment on the, some of the things that the Yale said. He was talking about passive censorship and how today many novels don't have the political contents of the past, how now everything seems to be so tame and quiet. How do we know? It's tame and quiet because that's what is published. And we just forget that the business of America is business and the business of publishing is making money. And so if tame and quiet is what sells, that's what is published. And even in the university presses, then there are other elements at work there because the publisher perish situation and, and the academics needing to publish. So there's a lot of things that are not tame and quiet being written out there, we're just not seeing it.
6: Yes, um, I would like to make a statement, in uh, reacting to something that was said by Dr. about writing being a form of control. It is true, writing is a form of control, but it is a necessary form of control versus the other type of control that I believe that you call passive censorship. I do not believe that there is such a thing as passive censorship. Censorship can never be passive. Censorship is exercised against the will of someone. And um, I do not think that writers do have a passive censorship. Or passive censorship is exercised upon writers on the on, on, on the contrary, I do believe that writers do react to the censorship that is uh, expressed on them, and that that reaction becomes <coughs> specifically the act of writing
7: uh, that's quite possible i i'm just i think I was thinking in terms of the general um, in the white establishment literature in this country, um, the the uh, the ideals of it. Uh, Gunter Grass was here a few years ago and they were talking about just this su- subject, he and some of our colleagues uh, in front of an audience like this. And the American writers, as I recall, took the position when the subject of to be political or not to be political, and your work came up. That it was a terrible mistake to uh, politicize yourself as a writer. That that's not what writers were supposed to do, and that it was a terrible uh, mistake to um, uh, to lend yourself to this uh, form of, of uh, looseness as a uh, as a writer. This form of of uh, aesthetic um, era. And Gross was uh, quite scandalized by these remarks. He felt that um, there in, in uh, the American right, if that was the predominating point of view of the white establishment American literary culture, he could see why we were in um, a bit of trouble uh, because he couldn't conceive of writing uh, anything that wasn't informed by his um, fervent political convictions indeed that he didn't make any distinction between politics and life, that one was the other and that everything we did and every um, everything we had or didn't have from the ability to read from literacy to to cars had to do with a, a political system in which we lived and if we weren't aware of it and didn't constantly analyze it and contend with it it would destroy us so there is the classic difference I think between uh, the European point of view and the American point of view in terms of, of of this matter we do have a piety as we write in this country and the piety is that you can uh, have all the politics and all the convictions you want, but they must emerge from the work. They must grow organically up out of the work as you produce. it. They cannot be impressed on it um, like a cookie cutter. If you start a book knowing that you want to illustrate certain political or even say religious points of view you will write a dead book. You will be a polemicist. Your audience will leave you. That is the—that's the standard American piety, I believe. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that many great political novels have been written in this country, and despite the fact—and maybe this is an interesting question—I um, should have said that the the self-censorship or passivity or diminishment of the fiction writers' horizons in this country uh, generally does not apply to black writers. It applies uh, mostly, as I understand, the question to white writers. One could hardly think of uh, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Tony Morris, and fact of June Jordan as, as having succumbed to this uh, privatism that has afflicted um, the majority um uh in the culture in the past uh, 20 years.
0: Uh, maybe this time we should take some questions from the audience. Uh, yeah, can you the yeah. You okay you all right
4: General literature, uh, most literature, to, to demean the image of the African and make him seem docile and do it all in the name of free speech. How will you protect my right as an individual to hold my head up high and not have to be constantly involved
0: with uh, negative stereotypes? Well, the question uh, was would anyone in the panel? Uh, like to define the meaning of freedom of expression as that relates to uh, the stereotypes which demean or narrow um, human beings. Specifically African-Americans. Specifically African-Americans.
5: Oh boy. I think um I think that that uh, what I have been um myself anyway trying to speak on behalf of tonight is, is um uh, a a greater equality of freedom for all of us who are artists and writers in this country. And um that's what you know and um once you have greater freedom for people, people do different things with freedom <laughs> um, but that's that's what it is it's not like I can't say I really want you to be free, I want to be free, I want freedom, I want your freedom, and I want my freedom, but then i 'm going to tell you what to do with yours you know and that's not that's uh, that's not part of the game. The point is freedom, and that's I mean that's what I'm really talking about, and I really mean that so that like if you if you have a tremendous as if we have equal freedom, um, if you draw a funny picture of me, I'd probably draw a pretty funny picture of you too. You know, the problem here is that we do not have an equality of freedom. That's what I was trying to say, of access uh, both to each other and also to um, onlookers or let's say the, the, the mainstream consciousness in, in our country. And when I say we, I just mean different groups of, 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 of Americans um, in our country have very different amounts of freedom accorded to us as writers, as thinkers, as, 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 as political beings. We really do. And to me, um, the goal is, is not to silence anyone, I don't, you know, uh, but really rather th- uh, to give voice to more and more and more people.
6: Um, I would like to say something. I don't know if freedom to write is the same thing as having access to the publishing media that is controlled specifically by a group of people. Um, In terms of, I have never felt that I have never had freedom to write. I've always been very free about it. Uh, The problem is, can I publish? Where can I publish? Will they publish me? Uh, Are they interested in publishing me? Are you, as readers? will be interested in buying my books. So um, I know I understand there is a problem with the title of this panel, the, pr- the, the problem of uh, freedom to write. I, b- I believe that once you decide to be a writer, and once you're able to accomplish that, freedom is uh, something that you take for granted in the process of expressing what you want to express in your writing. Um, Are we talking about freedom to write, or freedom to publish, and freedom to have the same access that bestsellers have to the media? I don't know, I don't know. It depends, and and, and I'm referring to something that June said before, in terms of of, uh, who can read? Who is literate enough to read? Uh, the language in which you are writing, and most of all, uh, who is your reader? Who is going to read what you're writing? Definitely, that is very much controlled by a a total power structure in the publishing media. Uh, But on the other hand, in my case, as I I have always been... um, Writing in Spanish in a country that doesn't uh, recognize Spanish as an official language, even when in New York, Spanish is very official. And all you have to do is look around. Um, the problem is, uh, how can you get to your reader? What, is the, wh- what access do you have to the reader? Who is going to publish you? Uh, in the, in the um, I think it was this weekend in the New York Times that there was this big article about Rabasa translating the latest novel of uh, Jorge Amado, the, the, the Brazilian writer, and that he has been paid $25,000 to translate it. And Jorge Amado is a great writer, definitely. Um, but ne- definitely, Jorge Amado has been translated for twenty-five dollars fee to Gregory Rabassa because Jorge Amado already has a picture made out of his mo- of, of of a book of him called uh, Doña Flora and her two husbands. So the access that you have to the American publish, after all, is really very well determined by the media and by what the media wants you to read, and uh, by who is going to be the fashionable writer for the season. And uh, I think that that goes not just for the, for, the, for the American minority writers, but it goes as well for the foreign writers who are publishing a book in English. Uh,
0: any other questions from the audience? Yes well you have a question not a statement
3: statement (laughs) okay all
0: right not too long
3: anything, and my colleague who told I know two, uh, Solzhenitsyn and Brodsky. Mm -hmm. Both of them are Nobel laureates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another 98% of Russian writers Mm -hmm. have nothing, they live in poverty. And real poverty, of course, this poverty is not the same in Russia. American poverty like paradises in the Soviet Union. (laughs) Uh, And they are ready to reject it. But, I want to uh, tell my question because my question is common, think, for all writers, Americans, Russians, Spanish, censorship in the United States. I got a chance to meet over there uh, Mr. Uh, Bernstein. Uh, He's a publisher of Random House, it seems to me. And just when I uh, took a look, I was
0: Is, yeah. is, uh, is your is your question have to do with wh- yeah. economic censorship? Excuse there me. A yeah. Wesley, I'd like yeah. To go ahead. To
5: that. Um, I I really um, I um, sorry I didn't get to your question, but anyway, if I can comment on your comment, or respond to it, um, I would be the last person to deny that there is suffering and censorship around the world. What I am saying is that there are dissident and revolutionary writers in the United States, and there is nowhere for them to go and get townhouses or anything else or chairs and so forth, this is it. There is nowhere for them to go and outside of our own country. And within our own country, we are mostly despised, ostracized, and not known. And I would suggest to you not to presume, to assume, that what you, what you have understood and suffered, if you have, I notice you're here, not there, and your country is somehow consummately more to deal with than what women in this country have to deal with, what black people have had to deal with and are still dealing with, what gay people in this country are dealing with, or Native Americans. I think that's extraordinary. I would rather say, and I would appreciate if you would have the humanity to say that you understand that we are talking perhaps about something that we both know something about in fact.
6: I, I would like to react also uh, about the statement. Um, Puerto Rico has been a colony since 1898, and we have been citizens since 1917. And I think that most dissident writers from yeah. Russia get a better publication in the United States than any Puerto Rican after 1917 since we were imposed a citizenship, has been able to get in the United States. Our work, we are American citizens, has been totally, totally discriminated, not published, pushed aside, censored by North American structure. So the difference is...
3: I think well, okay, that is
6: more th- than economics. I I, I I believe that it has to do with many things, and I would I would mention one, race.
3: Do uh, you see? Uh, I found out that very uh, right statement made, uh, Mr. Doctor. Uh, when we published our books in Russia, we tried to uh, found out how it's possible to find uh, wider uh, uh, writers, leaders, uh, and. Uh, publishes books in in English and uh
5: You know, I I wanted to respond to you in a matter of scale here. What you're talking about, and I think that we're talking about censorship here. Um, Two years ago, I was teaching a course at State University of New York in black English in the auspices of the English department there, and one of my students, a young black man named Willie Jordan, his brother was murdered by the police. His brother was black. The police were white. This was in a black community. And the students, both the white students and the black students in my class, decided that what they wanted to do with me was to write a letter of protest against this murder um, to Newsday, which is the newspaper on Long Island, which is where our university is situated. And we said, well, this is a letter for Reggie, OK? It should the letter should be written in Reggie's language. That would mean black English, right. And there was an argument back and forth. Well, if we write it in Reggie's language, will it be published or not? And everybody felt it probably would not, but that it would not be true to his memory to write a protest of his murder in somebody else's language, the language used by the people who in fact murdered him. And so we wrote the, lang- we wrote the letter of protest, the statement of protest in black English, Reggie's language, and in fact, Newsday did not publish it. We sent the letter to the Village Voice. And in fact, the letter was not published. Alright. We sent the letter all around. We sent it to the to television stations throughout New York City, all the major, all the major um, networks. And no one would publish it. And this young man is dead and I'm talking about he's dead in his own country and he was killed by the police and he was killed because he was a black man, a young black man. That's why when we wanted to protest his murder in a completely comprehensible form of English known as black English, we could not break print. I submit to you, this is pretty severe censorship. And I didn't make this up. We had to endure this and his family had to survive that. More serious than that, I don't think we need to deal with we need to correct that. That's why I said, whose language, which American language are we talking about?
0: Just a second. Okay, you've had your the opportunity latest. to ask a question. There's a question behind you. <laughs> yeah.
8: so no no i don't i don't <laughs> not
7: <don't laughs> i don't think uh, i don't really? i don't even think that's fair to <laughs> ask a question like that i what i was trying to suggest is yeah. that um writers um i'm not defending racism madam i'm not suggesting that um Black writers are not being censored. I'm not disagreeing with anything June Jordan has said. Certainly, I think the root thing that Mm. I respond to is the idea of literacy and um, what's being done to children and destroying their capacity to read and to write. What I was merely trying to suggest is that all through history, writers have struggled. And as some of my colleagues have suggested here, um, it, they whatever is going to happen to a writer is probably going to be bad. Um, if he receives no recognition, that's obviously bad. If he has no money to write with, that's terrible. But um, if he gets a certain kind of recognition, that can be very bad for his writing. And money can destroy him anything that happens to a writer will be bad for the writer. (laughs) The the, the key the the key question questions that have been asked here are the extent to which these problems are institutionalized in the forms in which we arranged ourselves as a society and quite clearly I think um, I don't, I mean, there are more black editors in mainstream publishing houses today than there were 20 years ago, but there are not enough. I don't know of any Hispanic editors in any of the major publishing houses. That's institutional right. racism we're talking about. The whatever the problems are and how vast, I believe, I guess maybe I should have expressed myself more carefully, I believe in the strength of the artist to overcome anything anything that's what I believe and this is not to say that children are not being destroyed who might have been artists this is not to say capable people are being pub- are, are not being published are, are, uh, uh, I'm just simply saying that Wherever you find problems, wherever you find great difficulties, somehow a culture should be able to (coughs) create the writers to match it and meet it and overcome it and recreate it. That is my uh, naive belief, and that's what I was trying to suggest.
0: Uh, We have time for maybe one or two more questions.
7: That's the story of every writer in every country in every uh, uh, literary culture in the world. Everyone rises from nothing, from nowhere, self-created, self-made. This is the way it happens. Well, i d- I certainly, d- I certainly don't know of any um, writers. Uh, writers. Uh,
2: uh, f-
7: don't get elected Please to the office. They don't, they don't have credentials yeah. like doctors. They're self-made. All writers are self-made. They create their own constituencies from their writing. They create a, an audience for themselves, and they create a, a vision that the audience shares, and they speak for other people than themselves, which is why they have an audience, why they create an audience. And this is not to say people don't have inside tracks, and people don't get grants because of one f- political reason or another. And this is not to say that things are great. We don't have to I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that a discussion like this, well, I think of some of the Latin American writers who don't, there's no publishing industry in many of the Latin American countries. And the way they get published is they go to Paris.
6: Been in the uh, Not really. They publish in Puerto Rico, too. You don't have to go to Paris to be Latino, well know, you're d- Latin American. Well, I know writer. that there I think that, it, I think that it points out to a problem. I think that we are treating writers like if they were just one class. And the reality is that writers are defined by their class. You know, that there is different classes of writers according to the class. And uh, we're talking about writers like if there was only one thing called the writers, the pen club. The reality is not that. The reality is that we respond to class realities of our own. And uh, what we're talking about here, I think that has to do very much with the class that we're carrying, the class that we belong to. And... uh, that that is what really makes the difference in terms of our writing.
8: Oh, but
1: also, I think we have to think in terms of readers. It's like if you write a book and nobody reads it, it doesn't exist. You put on a play and there's no audience, it doesn't exist. Uh, <coughs> this is not a nation of readers a great o- opposition to the Soviet Union, where <coughs> a poet can sell half a million copies. Or Cuba. Uh, here, uh, they go through school, and they, they read Moby Dick and the Scarlet Letter, and read a poem, and they don't want to hear about it again. <laughs> <laughs> they watch, t- watch it on TV. They wait for the movie to come out. So, and this is a reality we have to deal with in our own communities. We have, in a way, to create our own readers. And this is like the chicken and the egg. How do you create the readers? <coughs> if your books are not out there and are not part of, of curriculums in schools that, that uh, take into account that we exist, that we have things to say. Maybe not such masterful manners, because who defines masterfulness? Mm. Hmm? has been defined for us for very long. And this is the excuse we hear all the time. So there are a number of things here at work, and I believe very much in trying to create our own readers and then get our books published somehow. And from there on, we go on. But we cannot do all this alone. I mean, it, it's, it's a very complex situation. It's not one problem. It's many problems.
0: Um, two more questions. here. Yeah. question is, what do the panelists uh, think of the small press uh, presses and how they have uh, impacted on their writing in terms of publication?
6: Um, I had a small press uh, with funds from the Institute of uh, Culture of Puerto Rico and the New York Foundation for the Arts, and I was able to publish books, uh, a book by myself and three other books by other writers. It was a great experience experience. <laughs> no? um, I sold all the books, not just mine, but the books by the other writers. That's because I'm very pushy. Uh, <laughs> it is not a problem that I think that writers should be faced with no, they, and uh, and and it it takes a lot of energy. It's a nice experiment. It's a beautiful enterprise, but uh, I think that. The, the thing about writing is that you have to, to try to get to the most readers that you want to get to. And with a small press, it is very difficult to get to that. When you're talking, and, and then again, you, know, you have to deal with genre, which is a very important issue. Uh, we all know that nobody reads poetry. Nobody likes poetry, and nobody, and poetry doesn't sell. And poetry doesn't sell itself. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you're dealing with who are you trying to reach? As Dolores said, who is your public? And uh, how much access do you have to that public? And it is a really, really very difficult issue. It is good as, as an experiment, but I don't think that it is what writers should be doing. I think that we have to, to try to get to a more diverse uh, uh, reader Group and I don't think that small presses are going to solve any problem about it. Uh, I like
5: to back. Uh, I I'd, I'd like to just before getting right back to the question about small press, Mr. Brown, if I may. I would just like to say something that that, um, that Ed said and, and that Manuel. It seems to me it's related to each other in a kindred way. Um, I mean, when you say you've always felt free to write, and and I think if I understand um as i'm beginning to understand i think what you're saying Ed. i just wanted to say i would like to throw in with these two guys on that to this point that we do agree um i think uh, at least i agree with the two of you and what i'm talking about is not not that we have we're not talking about whether or not your work will have equal access or or distribution but that um I do think that whether or not you cut it as a writer, first of all, depends upon whether you're going to (laughs) write. You know what I mean? Regardless whether somebody's going to publish you or not, you have to be a monomaniac who is just going to go ahead and do the best that he or she can. This is really true. And the chances of of, um, the problem is that a lot of people, many people who are perfectly good writers, really get discouraged. You know, And they either don't give it their very best or continue to give it their verb so they don 't oh they stop, but um so I wanted to say I agree with Ed and Manuel and this, and, th- and I do think that 's true of of our art, the demand of it, and about the small press i 've been published by both small and large publishers and um, in, in fact, in alternating um, kind of sequence. and, and i like I think there are advantages to to both obvious th- it 's obvious the advantages to the to, to the regular bigs, big guys, I think the what may not be uh, so obvious is, is, is you just think about it. If they have a lot of people for whom they have to be responsible, the amount of attention they're going to be able to give you is going to be you know less. Also they're not going to have probably uh, someone paying quite as much attention to what's known as the alternative lists <laughs> uh, you know, as far as bookstores are concerned and constituents are concerned. On the other hand, uh, you get a tremendous amount of attention <laughs> from your small press, you know, phone calls, letters, even relationships and so on, it doesn't necessarily mean the book is going to be available anywhere, but you do have a very warm relationship <laughs> with your publisher and sometimes that can make all the difference I mean, to your morale. So I think you have to and I think w- actually on uh, all kidding aside, I really think that one of the things that would be really great is if if um if uh, you know, uh, really uh, big-time writers, regularly big-time writers, would uh, say every, every second or third book, go to one of the small presses. You know, that, that, would, that would boost things for younger writers and writers who are having trouble. You know what I mean? It w- it would and, and it wouldn't hurt you any. Because if you've got that much of a name, people are going to go and find your work wherever it is. And it would help uh, keep that press afloat. For other people who need to be uh, introduced to uh to our country and um and who are deserving so anyway, I've always thought it would be a great idea if uh if we could you know fluctuate and of course those of us who are only <laughs> published a small press would <laughs> like every <laughs> second or third book <laughs> <laughs> book to go you know to Knob. <laughs> i mean there's no question about it. I think that would be the best of all possible worlds uh, <laughs>
0: one uh, final question. <laughs>
2: I think that's a very good question, because that's <laughs> finally <laughs> what it all comes down to. <laughs> uh, and of course, I, the way I view it is that the large majority of the books that I've been published by a small publisher called Harper and Roe is, have all been in celebration of painters or writers or poets and so on. I feel that the best thing that I can do with the bit of public acknowledgement that I have received for my own work is to use that acknowledgement as a doorway through which other people can pass. Um, I think it is not simply a racial um, necessity and obligation. I think it's an artistic one. Uh, the person that gave me the incentive to do what I'm doing and I agree with that doctor I think I there there I maybe Tom Wolfe had it easy I don't know in in reading his books it sounds like he had a sainted life but I wouldn't have wanted to live it but mine was not sainted and uh, most of the writers and people in the arts I know have worked very hard to get where they are and I think sometimes when you're a Native American or a black person or a gay or a woman or whatever is not in fashion at the moment, uh, it may sometimes seem like you have a harder row to hoe than other people do in the arts, and I think in many ways you do, clearly. But I think you can't become blind to the fact that you're in a tough field, that it's it's difficult, that that. that's what I'm saying is that I think that when you find when and when you find people whom you think are particularly capable then I think you you go to bat for them you do everything you can you either do anthologies or introduce them to publishers or editors and you do those things behind the scenes that I think most writers do for one another uh, if they're engaged in the society at all I think that's the best way that you can change things is to use whatever influence you have to try to sing praise about the work of people that, you know, that excites you, that interests you, and that may may have a different vision of society from the one that is easily understood by the, by the consensus, and therefore you might be able to open people's eyes to this. Like for instance, books that are written in a kind of English that doesn't ring quite so familiarly as the kind of English that is, you know, th- th- that we find in the standard book written by someone from the dominant society. I think that's an important way of, of, of operating.
7: The making yourself available to young writers who come to you, um, either students by teaching, which is, I do or serving on various panels that judge work um, uh, in ter- for grants or endowments, which I do, or um, making recommendations. As a high order said privately to publishers, the work you think has merit that you've read or that you know about has come to your attention, which I do. Um, I don't, um, coming to occasions like this so that problems can be articulated, uh, which I do. Um, uh, and generally worrying, which I do a lot of. Other than these things, I'm afraid I, I, um, I can't make any claims to solving uh, problems like this.
0: Uh, I'd like to uh, thank Dolores Prima and Dr. Rose Jamaka Highwater, June Jordan and Manuel Alamos Lepero for their words, conviction and their passion and to the audience for your words and for your attention. Um, Thank you very much for coming. There is a reception in the rear of the, right
3: <laughs> at the edge. room.
5: Right at the edge. <laughs> 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 okay, so I'm home <laughs> on the edge. Uh, on the edge.
6: wasn't me. chair. Yes, sir. <Okay>. Just remember, <laughs> it's just like it's all me. He's right on the edge is a chair the
8: winter and